0: Hey guys, I want to preface today's interview by telling you that this is not for 99% of the population out there. But for a certain portion of my audience, it is extremely valuable. In my research, I've found that it's really a lack of reliable information for American citizens who want to renounce their citizenship. We get into details why some people might choose to do this, and I'm not saying people should do this, but for certain expats, it really does make sense. Americans are taxed on worldwide income no matter where they live in the world. So it can mean tens of thousands of dollars in taxes every single year. I will also tell you that the interview is really dense. It's like a master class in how to renounce your citizenship by a CPA who helps clients do this all the time. The interview is so packed full of information that I decided to have the entire thing transcribed so you can go through it carefully. I put the transcription in the show notes for today's interview. And to access the show notes and the transcripts, just jump on the computer and type in expatmoneyshow.com forward slash renounce. You don't need to enter your email address or any details like that. They are just there for you if you need them. I hope that this is really helpful for you and it helps you figure things out. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash renounce. Enjoy today's episode. Today, we're going to talk a bit about a controversial subject, how Americans can renounce their citizenship, how, why, and where this is done, and all the nitty-gritty details that go into this. Please welcome to the show, Olivia Wagner. Olivia, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. It's really great to have you here. I have read your book. I really enjoyed it. Actually, I've read it one and a half times. I read the whole thing cover to cover and then I've gone back and read uh, individual chapters for things that I really wanted to have a better understanding of.
1: Wow. it's a bit of, um, You like pain because it gets a really little technical at times.
0: <laughs> well, and it, and it's it's quite funny because I'm not even American myself. I'm Canadian, But um, it's important for me for the podcast and for my business to understand American taxes. So when I went searching on Amazon, your book came up uh, page one, number one. So I thought I better get it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: So, Olivia, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your backstory? How did you become an expat? How did you get working as a CPA and specifically with American taxes? Because you're in a different situation as well.
1: Well... I I am American, actually, but I started out French. I grew up in France with French parents, everything uh, French. I I studied in a French business school where I met my ex-wife, and she was doing an exchange program to visit France, and I used the exchange program to visit Louisiana where she was studying, and um, due to some coordination between the two schools, I ended up studying finance as opposed to accounting so i graduated I got my master's degree and then we moved to new york i worked in finance at moody's for five years i was in new york for seven years all in all and then uh, she was doing a phd in accounting she graduated she got a job at a university in montreal and um, it was 2008 so working in finance around that time was not the best um hr policy wise i mean um on my financial front, I was, I was all in moody stock, so that there was a little bit of anxiety there. But, um, on the HR front, they knew that we won't get a job somewhere else because, um, of the financial crisis. Um, so, so yeah, it wasn't a nice place to work in. So I wanted to work for myself and, and just have the freedom to travel and be my own boss. And I looked into the possibilities that people do IT things, artistic things. They didn't feel, fit my skill sets, and I couldn't be in finance, or at least I thought, because um, these tends to be large organizations, but I saw people were doing taxes for American overseas, and they were working remotely, because American overseas are all over the place, and and they were working with numbers, that's what I was already doing, So that's something that I thought was um, a good fit for me. So, I moved to Montreal, I created 1040 Abroad, where I became an annual agent first. And the beautiful thing about becoming an annual agent is that you simply need to pass the exam. You pay the fee to sit for the exam, and you pass the exam, and um, you're done. So, yeah, 2012, I created 1040 Abroad, I started getting clients, I was an annual agent, and... And sometimes I was struggling a bit, I was learning on my own. And then I joined an accounting firm in Montreal to become a CPA. So to become a CPA, it's a little bit more involving. Um, there's some requirements on the educational front. You need to have transcripts, you need to have one year of work experience. And and it, there's four parts, one of which is code regulation, which is very similar to the enrolled agent exam, which was dot percent taxation. And then there's four other things that CPAs need to know, even if they don't use it. So you have a CPA, he studied audits, uh, financial statements reporting, these sort of things, even though day to day I only do tax, that. but um, that's the way the CPA exam works. Um, so I became a CPA and then I, um, I left that firm and I kept on working for myself. I traveled a bit. In 2016, I was in 30 countries. Uh, I met my publisher in Thailand around that time, Gregory Dier,
0: who has been a guest on my podcast as well.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, right. So I started out French. actually studied finance, but as I moved to Canada, I um, I started doing taxes for Americans overseas, and I worked for a Canadian accounting firm in the U.S. Tax Department, and there I was again preparing tax returns for. Americans in Canada, as well as um, Canadians doing business in the U.S. All right. So, yeah. So for the past two years, I've been traveling a bit. I've been trying to um, figure out the way I want to live my life. And I've been serving Americans um, overseas. Oh, yes. We were talking about renouncing U.S. citizenship.
0: (laughs) Well, we can get into renouncing citizenship in a little bit. So I want to understand. So with... 1080 Abroad, do you mostly help Canadians who are doing business in the United States and Americans who are doing business in Canada? Or do you really help all Americans who live as expats?
1: All Americans who live as expats. I um I can prepare tax returns for non-residents. It's just that the way things have turned out, I prepare tax returns for Americans, especially for Americans who renounce US citizenship. Yes, that's what I was getting to. As I was quitting my job and I was jumping into the unknown, I met an attorney who's based in Toronto and he specializes in uh, people who renounce US citizenship. He's taking care of the um, the immigration side, working people through the process of dealing with the consulate. And he's quite allergic to taxes, not because he doesn't understand them, but because he has some uh, Anger trigger around them So
0: I, I, I don't think he's the only one to be
1: fair Oh no he's not He's definitely not he's, a, he's such a great guy His name is John Richardson He's such a great guy And he really cares about um, Well he's working a lot with really, accidental Americans So people were born in the US And moved to Canada when they were 5 years old Or something like that And they always consider themselves uh, Canadian Their parents are Canadian etc but since they were born in the U.S., they are U.S. citizens subject to taxation. And, um, yeah, it really gets upset about them having to, to file tax returns. And, and they don't have to pay usually. It's just the enormous amount of regulation and forms that come into becoming compliant that is, um, that's very upsetting. So, so yes, as I quit my job, I, I contacted him. We don't really have any promise um, or sort of obligation that we would do business together, but he has been working with me ever since, and uh, that he has providing me this um, this side of Americans who went was to citizenship. So that's oh, I got to be very proficient in. Um, from we'll get into it in detail later, but um yes, so I kind of developed this niche uh, by working with him, and then I found my own clients who were more the regular expats who just stay compliant year over year without the intention of renouncing, but one way or the other, they would file a 1040 following the same rules, fine tax credit, for so John. So yes, that's my story, started out in France, worked in finance in the US, became a US citizen when I lived in the US. Then I moved to Canada, that's where I worked in US tax. And as I quit my job, I worked with John Richardson and that's where I developed these interest for renouncing US citizenship and the tax aspect of renouncing.
0: Well, that's really interesting because I've done a lot of reading and researching and things online, but I've not met anyone or at least had anyone on the show who has really gone through this in a professional aspect and has helped so many people to, to legally get through, which what I would imagine would be a very difficult situation and, and very complex as well.
1: Um, yes, there's, um, there's two things that people want to meet in order to avoid becoming what's called a covered expatriate. And, uh, those are that they need to be compliant for the past five years and, um, they need to have less than two million dollars. So that's, that's the main criterion that's, that I work with. And then there's, there's just the, um, the compliance, the PFIX, the CFC. So PFIX are specific for foreign investment companies and some regards mutual funds, foreign mutual funds to be PFIX. Um, For mutual funds, so in Canada, they're considered as trust, but in the U.S., they're considered corporation if there's a limited liability. Mm -hmm. So for mutual funds created in Ontario before 2004, I have a basis to say that there wasn't true limited liability back then, and therefore it would not be a corporation, so we can get out of the which is And, yeah, it's really upsetting because... You have these people are normal people are having a normal life, they're not extremely wealthy, and they just happen to buy mutual funds in Canada because guess what? They live in Canada, so they invest in mutual funds. Seems to make sense. And then you have this pific regime, and there's some ways to get around punitive taxation by making a timely election. But guess what? They didn't really regard themselves as American. They do not think about... Making an election for US tax purposes. And after an election, they fall into what's called the excess distribution regime. And with debt their tax at the maximum tax rate of 39.2%. And with um distribution allocated to prior years and an interest rate being charged on the deemed distribution. Yeah, wow. I mean it's it's really punitive, it's really unfair. And they can still get the foreign tax credit to offset that, but given this primitive taxation regime, um, usually Canadian taxa- taxes are enough to offset U.S. tax. They have a greater tax rate. But when it comes to PFIC, um, once your tax at the highest tax rate in the U.S., chances are that, um, that your, your, your Canadian tax will not offset it. So yes, PFIC is really upsetting. There's no de minimis rules. Regardless of how small the amount is, the um, if you sell mutual funds you would have to report pfix at least to be compliant. And that's the thing about people who are now just, if citizenship. You want to be compliant for the past five years in order to avoid being a covered expatriate, so you go through greater length in this context than if you were simply um filing annual returns and filing them year over year without the intention of renouncing.
0: Of renouncing. Makes sense. So I guess before we get any further in, maybe we should actually take a step back and explain to the listeners the most common reasons that people would want to renounce their citizenship.
1: Right. It's it's taxation usually. And usually it's not even the cost of paying tax. It's the cost of paying your accountants to prepare taxes. And for so citizenship- based taxation that's the the law that states that u s citizens are taxed on their worldwide income wherever they live. A citizenship based taxation has existed since the civil war so It has existed for the past one hundred and fifty years. But in two thousand ten, a fat is coming to place, and uh, as the financial institutions have complied with it, it became more and more real. And now, foreign banks have to identify whom of their clients are u s citizens and forward their information to the iRS so even though citizenship based taxation has existed for 150 years, the the enforcement opportunities for the iRS were fairly limited, and the fact so many most Americans overseas didn't get into compliance because they didn't feel a need for it, and the IRS did not send them letters. But, but now that financial institutions are required to forward information of their U.S. citizen clients to the IRS, there is this um, this prospect of the IRS going after them. And the IRS has had its its budget reduced for the past six years, so. I believe that they'll only go after people with the highest balances, but, but there's a psychological aspect about being an American overseas, you know? You, you don't want to live with that fear and simply hope that the IRS won't track you down. So when, when people receive this letter from their bank asking them, um, Hey, we went through our cards, We saw that you have a U.S place of birth, so do you confirm that you're American or alternatively can you provide us with the certificate of loss of nationality? A CLN. Yes, exactly. A CLN, Certificate of Loss of Nationality, that's the last step that you get in the renunciation process. That's when um you will complete it during your interview at the consulate and then they will send it to the Department of State, and then they will return it to you stamped and signed once um, the Department of State agrees that that you announced. And um, yes, there's different ways to, to give up U.S. citizenship. You can relinquish it by performing an expatriating act, uh, typically acquiring another citizenship with the intent of... Renouncing U.S. citizenship. So that's the thing. These laws have been in the books for decades. But in the sixties, you will have it to prove that your intent was not actually to renounce your citizenship. It was now the onus is on you to say, Hey, I actually did that to um, renounce your citizenship. And then they want to see that you behaved like someone was not American from that point on. You did not apply for U.S. passport. You don't travel with one you didn't um, vote in U.S. elections, these sort of things, because if you did that, then that would um, show that your intent was not to uh, renounce, to relinquish uh, U.S. citizenship. So relinquishment happens de facto when you perform an expatriating act, but then you still want to go to the consulate and have them agree with you and issue a certificate of first of nationality, which will be backdated to the time of that expatriating event. That's a good thing about relinquishing. The bad thing is that you need to prove your intent. And the good thing is that it's uh, backdated to to that time.
0: And so what would that look like? Would you actually sit down at the consulate face-to-face with someone and then explain the situation of why you're giving up your U.S. citizenship and, and it would really be like a face-to-face interview?
1: Right, right. Um, they don't need to agree with you and you don't need to explain... Um, while you're doing it, you just need to
0: just declare it then, or how do I? I obviously I've never been through this, so I'm trying to picture what this would be like, what the process might go like.
1: Yeah, there there used to be two interviews. Now they combine them in one. Uh, the first one is to convince you that it's a very serious act, and that you we're really trying to convince you to not do it, and and then you have the the Actual renunciation in which you um, you show that, well, in the in the relinquishment, you will convince them that the expatriating act was done willfully with the intent of renouncing of relinquishing. Um, with the renunciation, you will go to the consulate and you would lose U.S. citizenship during the the interview. So there is no question about what happened in the past, what your intention was. It's, the point is that you you're willingly um, doing it. You're not coerced by somebody else. You understand what the consequences of it are, and and if you do, then they um, then they would um, stamp your CLN and then turn it back to you. So that that can cause an issue for for underage people, and as a matter of fact, they would not let somebody under sixteen renounce and, and between 16 and 18, there's some additional order to, to prove that the kid actually wants to announce and understand what's going on, as opposed to being questioned by somebody else, typically their parents, right?
0: So... And I saw something about if you renounced by 18, then you have an additional six months to kind of like change your mind or something. How does that work?
1: right exactly you can um if you renounce before the age of eighteen between the age of eighteen and eighteen and a half you can um you can get it back. you simply go back and you you say you want your back and they will go through the process of cancelling the the renunciation. that's the only instance in which you can get it back if um if somebody over the age of eighteen renounces, uh, then they cannot get it back, except by going through the whole process again of meeting a queen card spending three to five years in the US and applying for your citizenship again.
0: Just like any other normal person who wanted to become a citizen in the first place then?
1: Yes, exactly. After renouncing, you are a foreigner and and typically people can still get a tourist visa or travel without a visa if um there's citizenship in a country that allows them to do that. And that's what's great with Canadians. Canadians don't need anything to go to the US and just show up with their passports. Was Europeans, even countries which are part of ESTA uh Visa Free Waiver, Visa Waiver program, they still need to apply online and In 99% of the cases, the U.S. will give authorization for them to to travel with that online authorization. But, um, yeah, Canadians don't need that. that. They just travel to the U.S. with their passport without applying online to enter the U.S.
0: When I was a child, it was just our birth certificate. It was literally just a, a piece of paper. There was no picture. It wasn't even laminated or anything. And we were crossing the border back and forth. But now, yes, it is a passport.
1: I know. Times have changed. Times have changed. <laughs>
0: Times have definitely changed. So you know what I have seen here in the Middle East is a lot of people will fly over to the United States and, and say, like, like I, I met one couple. I think she was Russian and he was Egyptian or something like this. And when she was pregnant, she flew over to the U.S. and spent several months there and then gave birth in the U.S. And then the whole family flew back to the Middle East where I live. So that child is now an American. When that child hits 18, they're going to be liable to the U.S. government to pay taxes.
1: Well, as soon as they make more than $10,000 of income, really. And, and the thing in the Middle East is that you don't have the kind of income tax that exists in um in the Western world. So you still have the find earned income exclusion to exclude earned income up to $100,000. But but beyond that, there's not much of a relief for investment income or for earned income in excess of that amount. So yes, it's um, it's really an issue for people in the Middle East or other countries without a tax rate that would match the one in the US.
0: Exactly. Like... I'm quite sure that a lot of people do this type of thing and and I've heard it called an anchor baby and I don't hopefully that's not a derogatory term by any means but um I don't think that they realize that they have now shackled their child with taxation for the rest of their life. So if if I look forward in the future I could see in 20 years or something like that this would be a major, this would be a, a real reason that people would want to renounce their citizenship when they learn about this, when they start having to file a tax return themselves.
1: Right, right. Uh, we see things change. There's a bill to to end citizenship-based taxation that was passed right before Christmas, that was um, enacted. Sorry, it's not passed. It's enacted. It still needs to go through the whole process. It might never become...
0: Is that the Fair Taxation for American Abroad or something like that? What's that one?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the one, yeah. Is that it?
0: Okay, cool, yeah. I read about it, but I I don't know too much about it. It's bill, but it's not law yet. Is that right?
1: Yes, exactly. So it still has a long way to go. It just um, became a bill before Christmas, and it needs to pass Congress and the Senate to become law. So, you know, all these things can be. Um Right, so it's just a bill. So, um like I briefly mentioned, there's two ways to avoid U.S. taxation. One is the foreign tax credit, with which you get a dollar-for-dollar dollar credit of taxes paid to a foreign country. The other one is the foreign earned income exclusion, with which you can exclude earned income, so either wages or self-employment income earned in a foreign country. And for that, you need to meet one of two tests. What is the bona fide residence test in which you um you need to be a tax resident of that other country and uh, not have stated that you are non- resident there and then you need to have additional ties with that country there are more subjective, but you should spend six months there you should have you know if you speak the language if you have a driving license these sort of things will add or or the second test is the physical presence test which is much more objective and um and if you need to spend 330 days in any 12 month period in a foreign country. So what people miss is that it's any 12 month period. It doesn't need to be a calendar year. So if you, if you're overseas from May 16, 2019 to May 15, 2020, then, then you would qualify. I mean, the, the maximum amount you can exclude would be pro but you would uh, still qualify for the foreign donor chemistry. So, yes, back to the the fairness to American overseas bill. So, it would tie the taxation regime to the foreign earned income exclusion test. And if you meet one of these two tests, you can elect to be in a regime that's very similar to the way non-resident are taxed, i.e., only your U.S. income would be taxed. And the hope is that once this become law, then the next step will be to tackle uh, FATCA and other reporting requirements because once Americans will no longer be subject to U.S. tax on their foreign income, then the need for their banks to report them to, be, to the IRS will be elevated. But as we said, it's a...
0: I don't know. FATCA... That's a lot of control and power that they have. I, I don't see them giving that up. I, but yeah, what would be your opinion? Hey guys, we'll just take a quick break. So, my brand new book, Expat Secrets, has hit number one bestseller in multiple categories across Amazon. The book is all about how to grow your wealth overseas and protect what you get. We get into details on how to use the offshore markets to legally reduce your taxes, get a second passport, and diversify your finances. Honestly, the response for the book has been fantastic. You can get a copy today by searching on Amazon for Expat Secrets or you can go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash expat dash secrets and it'll redirect you to your copy of the book. You can get the book in paperback or a digital version on Kindle, and soon it will also be available in hardcover version and an audiobook copy on Audible. So go check out my brand new number one best-selling book, Expat Secrets,
1: today. Well, the IOS is merely enforcing the laws that Congress passed and given the fact that their budget has been decreasing and their obligation has been increasing, I would guess that the IRS is not too happy about FATCA either.
0: Really? Okay, interesting.
1: But it's not really their call. They they have to enforce the law. That's their mandate. But, yeah, that's why I think that if you have $50,000 or so in um, a foreign bank account, the IRS would not send you a letter because they don't have the resources to to go after people with this little uh, money in a bank account. But again, there's no there's no guarantee. It's just an audit lot tree and um, I cannot pay the audit lot tree that's um, circular to start. I cannot do that.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no, like, statue of limitation on this type of thing. If you... If you do something today, and then they find out in five years from now or ten years from now, they can still come after you for uh, from being non-tax compliant or these types of situations in the future. It doesn't have to be done right this moment.
1: Um, right in theory, the, um, there's no statute of limitation if a tax return has not been filed. In practice, the IRS employee would need a manager's approval to go past six years. So that's that's unlikely, but it's possible. Uh, statutory, there's no statute of limitation if the okay, tax return is not been
0: So let's bring things back to the Americans who need to renounce. So we've kind of talked about the situations of how it would be done and the type of person that might be right for. Can you explain a little bit more of a covered expat versus like an uncovered expat because I did a bit of reading about it but even myself I don't fully 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 understand it
1: um, sorry, I, I was thinking about all of these practicalities and oh so many accountants um, try to place fears in people when when penalties exist but they're almost never assessed but, but accountants feel that they could make more money by scaring people and then when people are in this state of fear they hire their services um that's that's something that I'm not trying to do so so that was just a remark based on what we said before um yes, so covered expatriates are are subject to an exit tax, a mark to- market tax, so anything that they owned at that point will be um deemed to have been sold at the fair market value on that day and they will pay capital gains on the difference between fair market value on that day and their basis.
0: But when you say on that day, I assume there's like a lead-up period. So you have months as you're preparing this to sell your U.S. assets. Is that right?
1: Right, right. So that would be the fair market value on the day before... You announced so the day before.
0: So it's basically, like that's the the last day that you could own anything. Everything would have to be gone. Would have to be liquidated before that day. Is that how it works?
1: Yes, there's some ways to um, to plan for it. You can donate something to to your spouse or to somebody else. So then it will no longer be your asset. You can. You can sell something that has a lot of unrealized capital gains. You would have to pay tax on it because at that point, it becomes an actual capital gain. But the good thing is that that will also become an actual capital gain in your foreign country, so you would have foreign tax credit to offset uh, the US side of things. Whereas if um, if you don't actually sell it, then you will have a deemed disposition and you will have a capital gain on the U.S. side, but, um, but not on the foreign side. So you will not have, um, a foreign tax credit for it. So yes, there's definitely ways to plan for it. And there's, um, there's other consequences of being a covered expatriate if, um, if you gift money to a U.S. citizen after renouncing. Then they would be subject to um gift tax. Um usually gift tax is paid by the donor, that's the only instance in which the recipients would have to pay gift tax. So that's another reason to donate uh before you announce. Or or you have families who renounce all at once. So the parents and the kids um both renounce, and this way they can continue to inherit or gift money. After the parents announced because the kids would also no longer be U.S. citizens, right? Um, yeah, and th- there's also, I think the biggest, if you have more than two million dollars and you comply, you do the planning to uh, minimize the exit tax. That's, um, that's something that is to be discussed between you and your accountant and see what, um, what the exit tax will look like and if that's something that you can live with. But if you become a covered expatriate by virtue of not having been compliant for the past five years, on Form 8854, there is a question asking whether you've been compliant for the past five years. And I just don't want anybody to answer no to that question because, I mean, you're just sending a phone to the IRS saying that you have not been tax compliant. To me, it's it's just a bit...
0: asking for trouble
1: <laughs> exactly exactly so fair enough yeah there's there's nothing uh in the law that says that if you are a covered expatriate by virtue of not being tax compliant, you get an audit but just use little common sense right um if you are an expatriate who's not covered then you're not you're not subject to the exit tax. You can give money to a US citizen and they would not be subject to gift tax.
0: So, the main difference between the two of them is one is subject to the exit tax and must liquidate their assets before, and the other one does not. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you might want to liquidate your assets before, else, you would be subject to capital gains. Um, obviously, if you, if you have a unrealized loss, of or if you as uh, virtually no unrealized capital gains, then it's not it's not an issue, right? Because you're taxed on the dim disposition as if you had sold all of your assets.
0: Okay. So how do you go from being an covered expat to becoming an uncovered expat? Or how do I, I'm still missing a piece of the puzzle here.
1: Oh right. So you file from eighty eight fifty four with your with your final tax return you send a copy to Philadelphia, you send a copy with your tax return. And on that form, the questions about whether you have more than $2 million, whether you've been tax compliant for the past five years, whether your average taxability over the past five years was more than $150,000. About um, Also, if you were born with both citizenship and you're still a resident of that other country, and you spent less than 10 years over the past 15, then you can still own more than $2 million and not become a current expatriate. Um, it was just a shortcut when I said $2 million of assets and are not compliant for the past five years. So that's the that's quaternions that um, are the main ones, but obviously contacting accountants to, to get the details uh, because it's tax flow, it's a lot more complicated than that.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. So it's basically like a there is a checklist, of criteria, and either you are a covered expat or you are an uncovered expat. It, it's based on your personal history.
1: Yes, exactly. You were a U.S. citizen up until that appointment at the consulate in the case of a renunciation. And then you become either a covered expat or an uncovered expat. You don't, um, you don't switch between the two categories.
0: Now it makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Because even when I was reading about it online, I found it difficult to understand. But now that you've explained it, now it makes sense in my head. Okay, great. So when we talk about the exit tax for a covered expat, what is the tax rate usually on something like this? How much, what percentage would that be?
1: So there's, um, capital gains are subject to capital gains rates, but the dim disposition of foreign pension is subject to graduated rates. And, and people don't often realize that they have a pension because their employer promised a certain amount when they retire and they don't really have their hands on it yet. But it is an asset of theirs. It counts towards the two million dollars. And and that's something that would be subject to the disposition rules. And that would be subject to ordinary rates.
0: So basically, you'll be paying a capital gains tax, same as you would normally, and then the rest is going to be dependent on your individual situation, on how much assets it is, and what type of structures you already have in place, like a pension program from your employer. Is that right?
1: Right. Right. People forget about pension programs, and they... Yeah, that can really make a difference to reach the $2 million and and their tax at ordinary rates, so between 10 and 35%. Okay, so
0: while we're on the topic of money itself, is there any fees, like a flat fee for renouncing or for having these interviews or anything like that that you'd be needing to pay the government when you renounce?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Um... Yeah, when I started, they were free. And then they created a fee for renunciation of $450. And relinquishment was still free. And then they bumped it up to $2,350. And they applied it to relinquishment as well. So yes, you have a fee of $2,350 to, to announce. And that, that's not, that's not an accountant's fee. That's a fee you pay to the government when you do. They they only take it at the second interview. So if they convince you to to change your mind, then then you will not pay it.
0: Well, if they convince you not to renounce, they're going to end up collecting a lot more from you during your life in taxation. So it kind of makes sense why they would be doing it that way, anyway. <laughs> so and I and I've, obviously you're not going to be able to give me an exact number, but on a rough estimate what would you pay uh, an accountant who specializes in helping Americans to renounce their citizenship? What would the fee be that you would need to pay your CPA, your accountant?
1: Right, so five years, um two thousand dollars. So I charge four hundred dollars per tax return. So five years would come out at two thousand um you would also need to file F bar, so that would be two thousand six hundred. So that's if you have not been Tax compliance at all, and you just want to announce without having filed tax returns in the past five years, then I would charge $2,600 to get into compliance and then $700 for the final year to, um, the final year. So, so when you announce, typically you don't do it on December 31st. So that means that you are a U.S. citizen for part of the year and you are not a U.S. citizen for part of the year. So that's why the final tax return is um, a dual status return. So that would be a 1040 NR, which is applicable to non-US persons, with the 1040, which is applicable to US citizens, attached. And then you have the Form 8854 to um, to announce the Form 8854, where you, again, where they then used to determine whether you were uh, covered expatriate or
0: not. So, for uh, very, very, very rough numbers, less than ten k, you can renounce your citizenship and no longer have an oblig- an obligation to the U.S. tax authorities.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you,
0: which could could save you forty thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars a year, uh for the right person.
1: Right. If you, if you have a P-fix, if you have so Pfix again, um. Foreign investment companies, it might be mutual funds. If you have a controlled foreign corporation, that would be a foreign corporation in which uh, U.S. persons own more than 50%. U.S. shareholders, we can discuss the details another time. Uh, then that would cut cost extra. Also, if you need some planning to get below the $2 million or if you need planning to dispose the white right assets, then that will cost extra as well. But if you have a regular situation, you clearly don't have $2 million. You don't have any um, any advanced um, investments or foreign corporation. Yes, that um, would definitely be less than
0: $10,000. Okay, excellent. It's just good to have an understanding of the numbers that we're talking about, even if it's a rough ballpark, so that if someone wanted to pursue this, you know, how much money they're going to need to be able to put up in the front and then what it, the repercussions and what the advantages and the implications and everything will be on the back end.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I love that. I just um, I just wanted to give full disclosure so that people understand that for most people, that's the field it would be, but not for everyone. Yeah,
0: which makes perfect sense. I know every time I talk to a lawyer or a CPA or anyone on the show or even just in private conversation, there's always like, you know, this is not individual tax advice and it's it's worth repeating. These are just general terms and general figures and everybody's situation is individual and you have to speak to your own accountant um, about these types of things. Like we're not giving tax advice here on this podcast episode. Yes, exactly. So Olivia, I would love to hear some, oh, for lack of a better word, some war stories, maybe any examples or case studies or things that you've dealt with in real life and kind of how the situations uh, unfolded when you helped uh, people to renounce their citizenship?
1: Right. I, usually they're not that wealthy, and the compliance cost is more of an issue than the actual tax-saving. So I, I was thinking about, about poor people who, who happen to have an RESP in Canada as some uh, Canadian products to finance your children's university studies, and the U.S. regards that as a foreign trust, so then there's an additional reporting requirement. And you don't have to be wealthy to have an ISP. That's something that regular Canadians do. But if you ask me about one story, I had someone who was above the $2 million threshold, was doing well, was self-employed, And we went through the breakdown of what our investments was and decided what was specific, what was not, which ones she could sell, which ones she could give to her husband. Her husband was not um a US citizen. And even if they were, you can do it as far as times. Right, so there was this planning going on, and then eventually she announced and she was still a covered expatriate. Being a covered expatriate, I think is not the end of the world. It's um answering that question where you say that you um that you are not compliant, that would be the end of the world. But if you have more than two million dollars, you did your planning, you can be a covered expatriate and still live a normal life. Right. So yes, I handle the tax side of things. Of course she went to the consulate, she had her interview. And then she, she was happy to no longer be in the U.S. tax system. And, and with my clients, usually there's this part that is, um, this irrational fear of the U.S. government. And, and oftentimes becoming into compliance and getting out of it is, um, is more straightforward than they imagine, but they get all of this anxiety, all of these fears out of their system once you have this signed uh CLA and you file your tax return with a professional accountant. And I have a few other stories but they didn't relate to um to people renounce. Actually I have two clients who are US citizens and they um they don't speak English. And what what one of them actually had a rental property which might cause US tax owing um some years down the world. But the end of the conversation was that when you at the US consulate you have to um and it, and um, and it was the deciding factor that convinced her not to renounce because she um, she didn't speak English she only spoke French.
0: <laughs> so she actually couldn't renounce because the the interview has to be done. Could she not have brought someone with her as like a translator
1: or something? Well, Adonis used to be used to be allowed to um, come into the interview, but not anymore. So. There were other factors in play, but that was that was a factor um I don't think so attorneys attorneys used to be allowed, so you have an attorney to um walk you through the process they could come with you not anymore uh, because again, they want to make sure that your decision is not biased by anyone so yeah i mean it's it's an isolated case, but it was worth mentioning, yeah, we find a way to minimize uh our u s tax by by filing year-over-year, it's just that um, she didn't pronounce. And uh, speaking about the find down income exclusion and um, the physical presence test, I had a guy in Canada who actually was buying gas in, um, in the U.S. because gas is cheaper in the U.S. And so, and so for the physical presence test, you need to... Um, you spend two hundred thirty days in a twelve month period in a foreign country, and there's like fifty two weeks in a year and even if you spend part of the day in the u s it still counts as a day in the u s so we couldn't use the um, the physical presence test because it was being gas in the u s which was which i thought was also an interesting story it it wasn't about renunciation but yeah
0: well on that one, I've seen people who think that uh you know being on international waters counts being outside of the united states and it's actually and once again correct me if i'm wrong but if you fly out of the united states it's not until you land and then the following day that is actually going to count as one of your days that is outside of the states
1: yes that's right if you that's the day you leave the u.s uh if you If you travel from.
0: If you flew from, say, Los Angeles to Sydney or something like that, and you're over international waters for, you know, eight hours or something, nine hours, that day actually won't count, right?
1: Right, exactly. There's two exceptions. One is if you travel between two foreign countries for less than 24 hours, and if you are in transit in the US for less than 24 hours. So if you just flew the hour before from Mexico to LA, and then you take that flight, you might still be able to exclude it. But if you were in the US for more than twenty-four hours, then then your interpretation is correct. Uh, that issue is um is a bigger one for air airline pilots and um, people who work on cruise ship or people who take cruise ship as passengers because do not move as fast as so... <laughs> uh, it's true. So,
0: so that... it's true. No, it's it's a hundred percent true. But it, it like like I would think that people would just look at this and go, oh, three hundred and thirty days. You know, it's it's it's, it's around three hundred and thirty days, and it's like no, the 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 IRS are very particular about like they will they will take you to court and you will have to prove the hour by hour and they will need proper like they don't mess around on this type of stuff if they say 330 days they mean 330 days
1: and it's not 330 days outside the us it's 330 days in a foreign country
0: which is a huge like you would assume that they are the same things but actually that is a huge difference, especially when you're talking international waters.
1: Yeah, yeah. International waters and in Cuba don't, don't count. Cuba doesn't count. I mean, if you have, um, yeah, if you go there against the travel embargo, then uh, that doesn't count.
0: Well, the travel embargo is, you're not allowed to spend US dollars there. Isn't that how it works?
1: In theory, but in practice, if you land with a plane, then you pay some airport taxes to Cuba, the to, to Cuban government. And right off the bat you just uh violated the embargo. Um, yes, I know a yeah, guy who um Guam I think, they traveled to every country in the world without um flying. And and like it it was stupid enough to go from the US to Cuba as opposed to like, because he's British, he's not American. Um So he could have gone from Mexico to Cuba and everything would have been fine, but he went from Florida to Cuba and everything was fine still because he had friends take his boat and they went to Cuba and he landed on the beach he was like, yeah, I'm in Cuba. And then he went back to Florida and he didn't spend any money in Cuba. So actually, actually that was fine. But if you take the plane, then you're going to pay airport taxes to Cuban governments and white-of-the-bat right to just violate the embargo. There's, some, there's some, a people-to-people general license now that is self-certified, so if you go there for cultural purposes to um, connect to the culture of the Cuban people, that's, uh, that's something they that could audit you on later to see whether you went to an online resort or what you actually did. But it's not um, a license that you have to ask the treasury department. It's one that is self-certified. So if I was to go to Cuba, I would ask you that was under the the people-to-people license.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was on the phone. Well, I interviewed Doug Casey. I had him on the line. And, uh, And then I talked to him a bunch of times afterwards. And he's been to Cuba three times or something like that. And he was telling me that when he went... He actually had he was working with a Canadian mining company, and they paid all his expenses the hotel, the food, everything so he didn't even pay one penny while he was there. every single thing was covered by the Canadian company, and therefore he was not violating the embargo but anyways, I don't want to make this <laughs> episode about how to get into Cuba, but just a, an interesting point there so I guess my last real question for on the topic of uh, Americans who are trying to renounce, is have you seen like more people going down this path, going down this route since you've been working as a CPA?
1: Oh yes, you have no idea. Oh yeah. Um, I, I had one person in 2012. He was in um, in Switzerland, and Switzerland was a little bit on the forefront of things because it used to be a tax haven, and and so the the U.S. Department of Justice uh, sued. Swiss banks on the pretense that they were helping on tax evasion. So the so Swiss banks were already uh, looking after their US citizens before before FATCA because uh, the US Department of Justice sued them. Uh, so yeah, in 2012 I had one person and he was an outlier. I, I didn't have any other clients, it was not a thing. And uh, and then year over year, more and more come out, the Department of State uh with the statistics he's in the thousands now. The FBI also does, but they don't quite match. So we're not entirely sure, um, what the number is. And there's always people who renounced and, and they were on either list. They were not on either list, but they have a certificate of nationality. So, so they don't have anything to worry about. It's just that, um, that is not the, the numbers released by the U.S. government are incomplete. And even so, they've been increasing exponentially since 2012, and they're in the thousands now. Wow, that's incredible.
0: Well, Olivia, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking us through a complex uh, subject and helping my listeners and helping me to have a better understanding of how this whole process works. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do, uh, where should we send them?
1: Yeah, simply go to ten forty abroad one zero four zero, just like the form uh, abroad a b i a dot com, and there will be a contact form there. Fill it out, and I'll get back to you by email. We can schedule a call if uh, if that's what you want.
0: Fantastic! I really appreciate your time, Olivia, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay?
1: All right. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good one.
0: That interview with Olivia was intense, eh? He just spelled out the entire process of how to renounce your citizenship if you're an American. As I said at the beginning of the episode, it can make sense for the right person. If you need more information, feel free to go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash renounce or email me at support at and I can introduce you to Olivia so he can go through things with you in more detail if this is right for you.